take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 28. 28. I have the passage for you on the insert as well. This is one of the four very thorough accounts of the rising of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most verified facts of history. Nearly everyone who has set out to disprove it has wound up believing it. They didn't always trust in Christ, but they believed the resurrection had to have occurred with all the attestation it has compared to so many other things that are just accepted. The evidence is simply overwhelming. You know, there are thousands of world religions, but there is only one empty tomb. There's only one who conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave, the man, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the God-man. There's only one who conquered this, and he is our Savior, and he is who we come to worship. You know, the issue of people rejecting the resurrection isn't really on an intellectual basis or a, a matter of unconfirmed history or because there's a lack of evidence. The issue is profoundly moral. That's the real reason people want to write off or deny the resurrection happened. It's a moral issue because it's about an honesty concerning what it would mean if Jesus did rise again. Uh, if he's not raised again, then we can go about living our lives however we want, because no one can really speak to living past death. Only one who's been there and come back and defeated death and lives can tell us this. So if we can deny this, then we have a way to live independently of any accountability God might put upon us. The issue that makes people deny or ignore the resurrection, it's not intellectual. It's really a matter of heart moral rebellion. If Jesus rose from the dead, then everything he said is true. And here before us is one of several accounts that attest to its truth. Matthew 28, 1 through 10, please hear as I read God's holy word. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, what a happy Easter morning it is. What a day of celebration indeed. Our Lord Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first one of those who have fallen asleep. For as by Adam came death, and by the second Adam, our Savior, has come also now the resurrection of the dead. 
O Lord, as we look at this account of the resurrection, may every listener be encouraged and grown in their faith. May some who are spiritually dead be made spiritually alive and experience a soul resurrection. May they be made alive together with Christ. Grant us the illumination of your Holy Spirit so that we might know what is true and what to do. I pray this through Christ. Amen. Whenever I have opportunity to preach on the resurrection, and I always preach at least in light of the resurrection, but on the resurrection itself as the topic, as the subject of whatever passage we are looking at, it's my prayer that people who do not yet believe on Christ would hear and would believe. And that's no different this morning for sure. However, my particular desire developed over the week as I studied these two Marys and really the motives and the reasons they went to the tomb that first morning, um, I found them to be definitely devoted followers of Christ. We know this from the account of both, about both of them in the, in the gospel leading up to this point. Yet, though they were devoted followers, they were struggling in their faith. Uh, they did not go to the tomb expecting to see Jesus raised again. I would say they weren't expecting the resurrection of Christ. Despite him speaking to this topic, there was distress and confusion among the disciples whenever Jesus talked about his death. They sometimes missed that he said on the third day he'd be raised again. So I think that these two women represent most of us. We believe, but we struggle with unbelief at times. And so I believe this account on first order will serve to encourage you who are believers on this Easter Sunday, that you would grow in your faith, that you would be strengthened and stabilized all the more, that your Savior is alive, and he's seated at the right hand of God, and from there, he's subduing more and more people to himself, just like he subdued you, borning them again, performing a soul resurrection, making us alive together with him, so that we will live with him eternally, and we too will experience resurrection just like Jesus did, literally so. Not figuratively, not mythologically, not just as some story that might inspire us, actually experience bodily resurrection because of Christ and what he has already done for us. These women we can relate with. They come to the tomb that morning not expecting that Jesus would be risen, but they wanted to honor his memory. They loved him. They were devoted to him. They were faithful to him. They were coming, though, to complete the preparation of his body for final burial. Look at verse 1, and we'll see how this unfolds. After the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, who are these Marys? These are faithful disciples of Jesus, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. There are at least four different Marys mentioned in the gospel. I kind of chuckle when I see this many Marys. I thought the only place you'd have this many Marys would be in a Catholic Italian family like mine. Um, My dad has a sister, had a sister, she's now gone. Her name was Mary. And then three of his brothers married Marys as well. Now that was for the Virgin Mary, not for the same Mary that these Marys were named for. These Marys were named for Miriam from the Old Testament. Mary is a derivative from Miriam. You remember Miriam, the sister of Moses, who helped Moses escape the clutches of Pharaoh and actually turned the whole thing around. In a way, Miriam was a deliverer of the deliverer. And there's a similar parallel we see, of course, with Jesus' mother. 
But these two Marys, we know Mary Magdalene, she's easier to track. The other Mary is most likely the wife of Clopas, who might be the same person as the mother of James and Joseph. We're not positive. At any rate, these two devoted followers of Christ, they were coming to anoint the body. We know this because the Gospel of Mark says that that's, that was their purpose. Now, they were talking about how they would get into the tomb if it was sealed, but they knew that they did not want to leave their Lord's body without anointing. This would have been the normal practice. Remember, he dies on Friday. It was prepared, wrapped, and put into the tomb. The next day is the Sabbath, so they can't go about a proper an, an anointing in uh, application of oils and perfumes. So they wait till the very next day, but it's the dawn of the next day, the first day of the week that they go. They were the last ones at the cross, and now they're the first ones at the tomb early that Sunday morning. Verse 2, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Earthquakes are often used in the Bible to accompany some great word of God, sometimes a judgment of God, denotes his presence. And we have something similar here as the earth shakes and this angel descends. And the angel seems to easily roll back the stone. Remember how powerful these angelic beings could be. Back in our study of Genesis at Sodom and Gomorrah, two angels held back a whole city of people trying to knock down the door. This singular angel, the power of multiple men, moves the stone and sits on it. A demonstration of his dominance, um, God's messenger sent to show or demonstrate the defeat over death. These mechanisms of man, which were pretty amazing, guards, a seal, the tomb, easily pushed to the side when the angel descends and sits on it as this show of superiority. Remember, the removal of the stone was not to let Jesus out. The stone did not have to be removed. In fact, Jesus is already gone at this moment. The removal of the stone is to lay bare, lay open to verification that the tomb was now empty. It was so the disciples could come in and see that he had been raised. Verse 3, something of the appearance of this angel his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. Imagine as you see a, a wonderful storm in the Midwest and all the, the lightning, horizontal, vertical, every which way in the sky. You haven't seen that kind of a storm until you've lived in this part of the country and seen it. And your, your eyes blink every time you see that lightning. If it's close, it really can shock you. His appearance was like lightning. So the full of his appearance, I don't imagine it to be a flashing, but just so bright that one would have to wince a bit and, and adjust themselves so they could see. Then the clothing of the angel was as white as snow, super vibrant, striking in appearance. A persistent light, something that would terrify those who don't understand. And this would mark the guards for sure. And the guards are described in verse 4, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They were so overwhelmed, they lost consciousness. They, they fell unconscious, we might assume. Uh, the women don't have that exact response. They are Jewish women who probably knew of angelic visitations. They had not seen them. I'm not saying they had, but they'd heard of them, even in the account of Jesus' birth. And now there they were. But the response 
would be understandable if they were scared. So verse 5, the angel said to the women, notice he makes no comment to the guards who were out cold at this point, to the women he says, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. It's always necessary when people meet angelic beings to be told not to fear. Because the natural response to this supernatural power would be to fear. That would be rational. The angel knows that the women do not yet believe that Jesus has been raised. They say, I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. Now, there's some unbelief here, no question, in the women. And the, angels, the angel does not scold them for it, scold them for it. He simply says, I know why you're here. You are here to pay tribute or honor to a dead man who meant much to you. He knew why they were visiting. But I have news for you. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. For he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. There are several moments the Bible describes that I, I hope in heaven, and I know I won't have lack of anything, uh, but I, at this point, I would love to know that moment, what those two God-fearing women who now are starting to come to realize that something massive has happened, now they're starting to recall what Jesus said in more fullness, they're starting to get a sense of hope that this, this is true. With this, this angel can't be lying. There's more to this. He's not here to harm us. In fact, he wants us to know for sure. And he says, come and see the place where he lay. So they can lay their eyes on it and see and know he's not there any longer. Uh, just the sense they must have at that moment. Do you think they went back now and started to replay in their minds? The angel said, for he has risen as he said. When did Jesus say this? Let's think about that for just a moment. There are actually several occasions in the Gospels where Jesus is speaking to people and his disciples are listening and he refers to what will happen to him, that he'll die and be raised again. In most cases, this prediction shook up his followers. I think it was they couldn't get past when he said that he would die and it bothered them, it distressed them. But he did on several occasions predict his actual resurrection, just as he said, like the angel denotes. One of the occasions happens in Matthew when Jesus is having a debate with the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes and the Pharisees keep asking him to do more tricks, to do more magic signs. They're just kind of making a play of him. They weren't there to really believe. They just wanted to hopefully eventually catch him in something he couldn't do. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's describing his burial. Of course, what happens in the episode with Jonah is that The great fish expels him up onto the shore. And likewise, Jesus would come up out of the grave. So it's a slight reference, but a reference nonetheless. He gets far more explicit as he spends more time with his disciples. 
in the Gospel of Mark. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Now pause. If you were one of his disciples, you love him, you're watching him, you're following him, you see all he's doing, you see people uh, being changed, their lives are renewed, they're blind, they're seeing, not just physically, but spiritually as well. And then he says, they're going to come and kill me. Would you hear much else that he says afterwards? They were shook up by this. And we know this is true because the gospel writers make a point to let us know this. In that account, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. It's almost like they missed this. And Mark says, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now certainly they understood that he could get killed as the authorities were taking more notice. But what saying were they not understanding? I think it relates to the fact that he says, and when he has been killed after three days, he will rise. They didn't quite understand it. And they go on. The Matthew account of the same discussion says they were greatly distressed. I think it's fair to say they were distressed over this idea that he would be killed. And they didn't get far enough along in hearing that he's also saying he's going to rise again. The angel says to the women, he is risen, just as he said. Mark chapter 8, one more episode where he gives an explicit reference to the raising of Christ, to the raising of himself. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He began to teach them. This means he started and continued to do this teaching. He introduced it at a certain point in his ministry, and it became more common in his teaching. That's what we can derive from the language here in Mark 8. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. So Mark is capturing a teaching, a lesson he started to give on a regular basis, about midway into his three-year public ministry. Further, it says, and he said plainly these things. Now, notice what happens after he starts to teach this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He started to rebuke Jesus for saying you'd be killed and raised again. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus looks at them all, and he rebukes Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, watching the success of Jesus' teaching and miracle and sign ministry was, it certainly was starting to build in the disciples that Jesus, yes, he's the Messiah. Something great's going to come from him. People are, yes, he should be the king. They should follow him. They had a difficulty recognizing the necessity for him to lay his life down for their sins first before he could assume that role as king, that reigning king. So they see this blurred together. And when Jesus starts talking about dying like this, um, they're just not able to get past that. And Peter says, don't talk like that, Lord, that you would thwart this progress that's happening. And he's thinking earthly. More people are coming. More people are agreeing. And Jesus is saying, Peter, you're thinking too much about the earth. You're thinking too much about the here and the now and what people on earth would say is successful. What I have to do is far greater than just building up a crowd right now. I'm going to the cross and the authorities will kill me. But I will not be held by this. I will be raised again. But Peter and the others were stuck on this point of him being killed. This is why, though they believed, when he died, the women went to the tomb. They did not think he would be raised again. 
Now back to verse 6 of our text. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell. Please catch that. It's, it's for us too. Come and see, go and tell. Come and see this is true, now go and tell. Go and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. See, I have told you that God has given me this word to speak. He has given an authoritative testimony about what had taken place and what they should do about it. Come and see, go and tell. And notice he says to go to Galilee. Galilee is a place that was not... uh, on the top list of, of Jewish appreciation. It's where a lot of Gentiles were. Some Jews were there for sure. That's where Jesus began his ministry. Remember they called him the Nazarene. Uh, this, he he kind of came from outside the inner circle. Yet here he is the Messiah, son of David, from the tribe of Judah, no doubt. But he comes from Galilee. And now go back to Galilee, and that's where you'll meet the risen Christ again. It's a bit of a, an indicator to everybody, yes, he's the Jewish Messiah, But he is here for all the nations. He is here for as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to bless all those who will trust in him. So they departed quickly from the tomb. What a difference now. Now now their faith has been bolstered. That's what I hope Easter Sunday you are built up again when you hear the truth of God's word here preached, uh, that you would have the same response. Maybe you came with doubt, with struggling in your faith, but you've been refreshed by the word of God and the Holy Spirit testifying, you know it's true. The world's telling you it's not and you have all these things beating you down, uh, beating Christians down, but you come to this house to hear the word of God again that he has been raised. And the women, they perk up when they hear this. They realize this is true, so they depart quickly from the tomb, verse eight, with fear and great joy. What a great way to leave is to, with awe that this is truly true, God. This is truly God's movement. This is truly God himself, Christ. This is an awesome display, an angel speaking to them. But they have great joy. Joy is not just this happiness. You know, it's this inner contentment, knowing that God is in control and he cares for you. With fear and great joy, they depart quickly, and they don't just uh, move the same pace that they came. They ran. They ran to Galilee to tell his disciples. They believed the word of the Lord spoken by the angel about Christ. Their faith had been pumped up or revitalized. And they go to tell. They still haven't met Jesus, but they've seen all that they need to see to bring back to their remembrance. I just wonder as they're running back several miles, if they're, they're shouting to one another, you remember when he said this? Do you remember when he said that? Do you remember when he promised? Now it's, and they're just, maybe they're just going through there. It's all becoming clear to them. Before they even get to their final destination where the disciples are, behold, verse 9, Jesus met them and said, greetings with peace in another translation. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Spontaneously, they did what any one of us should do if we are in the presence of Christ. We fall before him and we worship him. They grabbed his feet. Think of the intimacy of this for Mary Magdalene, likely the woman who uh, used her hair to anoint his feet and wash his feet with her hair. Uh, 
They've seen his feet many times as they sat before him while he taught. Scarred now, but physical, the glorified body of Christ, the real bodily Jesus, not a specter or a vision, Jesus himself. There, and they worship him. They held on to those feet that they sat before so many times. Then Jesus said to them, verse 10, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Come and see. Go and tell. The empty tomb calls every one of us as believers to come and see once again, afresh, that Jesus is the truth. And to tell everyone that we know that he is the way to eternal life, the thing that everybody's most worried about, that thing called death, that reality that, will, that faces us all and what comes after, it's all answered in the one who defeated it and is alive forevermore. Come and see. Look at verse 5. Come see the place where he lay. Verse 7. Go quickly and tell. What? That he's risen from the dead. That he's true. By coming and seeing that Jesus is resurrected, by coming and being refreshed in Jesus' resurrection as believers on this Sunday, we then witness afresh the validation, the validation of Christ by God. That's what the resurrection means. It's a validating of all that Christ came, said, and did, and taught. Examining this final proof, this resurrection, this validates everything else known about him. The resurrection is God validating Jesus as the truth. So, when Jesus says in his earthly ministry, whoever believes in me will have eternal life, they will not perish. That statement is validated by the resurrection. When he says, I come to seek and save the lost, he can do so and be effective in it because the resurrection validates what he said is true. When he said, I've come to give God's peace in the midst of all this unrest, that ability of Christ to deliver on that promise of peace is validated by the resurrection. Jesus said that I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will not hunger. That's validated by the resurrection. He said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever believes in me won't remain in darkness. You'll see things as they're meant to be. That's a promise that Jesus makes, and that promise is validated by the resurrection. Jesus said, I am the door. If you come through me, you will be saved. That declaration is validated by the resurrection. If he is not raised again, he is not even someone to admire. He should not even be on your list of admirable people. Because what lies these are, if these are not true? But he said, I'm the good shepherd, and I come to lay my life down for the sheep. I lay it down that I may take it up again. But I will not lose anyone that's been given to me as the good shepherd. His resurrection validates that claim. I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That claim is uniquely validated by him and by no other. Jesus said, whoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. Validated 
by the resurrection. So in sum total, all of this about Jesus. He's the second Adam. He's the Savior. He's the Redeemer. He's the Son of the living God. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All of it is validated by the resurrection. It's all true. Come and see. Now once you've come and once you've seen, go and tell. Go and tell others because they need to know this. Don't worry about being embarrassed by it. Don't worry about being rejected. If you've come and you've seen, you're going to want to go tell. What do we do with this knowledge? Verse 7 of our passage. Go quickly and tell his disciples. Don't waste any time. Go right away. Tell them. They're in terrible despair right now. They're, the disciples are as dejected and depressed and as desperate as they've ever been. Go quickly and tell them that they don't have to be that way anymore. Do you know anyone depressed, dejected, dark? Well, go tell them. They don't have to be that way anymore. Jesus said to them in verse 10, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. You've seen me. Come see me. Now go. We have confidence in telling others about Christ because he's the living Christ. We've seen something about him that's never been seen about anyone else, so go and tell. We don't need to be ashamed, embarrassed, or scared. At the end of chapter 28, Jesus gives some of the most uh, inspiring words that he speaks. And they have power because of his credibility validated by the resurrection. He says to his disciples, and then by extension to us, go therefore, therefore, why? Because I'm the risen Christ speaking to you. I'm about to ascend into heaven to assume my seat at the right hand of the Father. From there, I will oversee the, the dominion of my people going out and being evangels, declaring this message. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That all makes good sense. Those are, those are logical conclusions that the disciples should have made standing with Jesus as he's about to ascend. Logical conclusion that makes good sense. But what he says next is the, where the power lies. And behold... I am with you always, not just in your mind, not just as a memory. Do this in memory of who cares about that? That's not going to help me when I go to the nations and tell, tell them about Christ. No. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The living Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, is actually with us when we go forth with his name. It's not just a good memory we're working off of. It's King Jesus subduing the nations to himself. Making his enemies a footstool. That's what we're speaking of. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's the message. That's the message that we continually go and tell. 
Isn't it tremendous we get to go and tell this message? We have this message. Isaiah 40, Isaiah the evangelist of the Old Testament, speaks with a certain zeal that I think we can apply, even now, especially through the lens of Jesus. In Isaiah 40, verse 9, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, behold your God. The empty tomb calls us to come and see that Jesus is the truth and to tell everyone that you know that he is the way to eternal life. Jesus' resurrection is God's validating Christ is true. And this is true of what we've observed in the Bible and how we are to live our lives today. But there's one last element I want to draw your attention to. There are many promises in the Bible that God has given that are for the here and the now and for our future. Believing in those promises is the only logical result of seeing everything else he said to be true. So when you read these promises, believe them to be true. When he says he's coming back, believe this to be true. It would be foolish to see the full testimony of Scripture and everything that actually happened and then assume he won't fulfill that, certainly he will. In John 14, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus said, therefore, you must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus said, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. Jesus said, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Brethren, do you believe that Jesus rose again? Then you should believe that he's coming again. And if he did it then, he will do it again, just as he said he will. So when he comes, we shouldn't be like Mary at that moment and be surprised by it. And then an angel have to tell us, remember, he's just as he said. No, we know he said it and we look forward to it. And it actually works to shape our expectations. And it prompts our urgency to go and tell. Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Finally, the words of Paul, one of his later epistles, he writes to the church at Thessalonica, relatively new Christians there, who were struggling with the doctrine of the resurrection because some of the people in Thessalonica were not the first eyewitnesses. There were over 500 people that over 40 days interacted with Christ, saw him, he taught, and that's a lot of people. I mean, there's, there's maybe 300 people here, 250. And if I said something really, really crazy, it wouldn't take long for it to be on Facebook, on Twitter, on everything. And people would know about it really quick. Well, you have 500 people then um, in, with an oral tradition that's much tighter than ours in the way that they relay stories and what happens. So 500 people over 40 days interacting, seeing the risen Christ. But the Thessalonians, he's writing around 60, some 30 years after Jesus ascends. Uh, in a part of Greece where it's likely there weren't eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The Spirit had come, they believed on Christ, but they were living in a, a pagan land with all these pagan ideas about what happens after death. So Paul the Apostle writes to assure them once again of the resurrection of Christ and how it shapes their expectations in their life purpose. I'll close with this from Paul. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, 
those who had died in their midst, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He's describing that final coming, what this will look like. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. These are some specifics given. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Yes, that would be difficult to believe if we did not have a risen and living and reigning Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, if you, our ultimate, in you, our ultimate dilemma has been answered. You have conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. Make us to be like the two Marys that we have just read of. With fear and joy, may we run and tell everyone we know that you are alive, you change lives, you rescue souls, you give us a sense of our adoption, our belonging, you love us, You give our lives meaning, you give our lives purpose, and you are coming again. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.